all children thrive. And I would say all people thrive if they learn to believe in themselves, to pursue their true passions, to find new ways to solve old problems, to see opportunity where others see the status quo, to be willing to take on a challenge without proper credentials, to work with single-minded determination to achieve a goal, to take on risk if the project is worth trying, to learn that building something wonderful is its own reward, regardless of how much money you make, to view failure as feedback and setbacks as learning experiences, and to dream big dreams. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community, undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. A few months ago, I attended an event called The Summit in Los Angeles. You may have heard of it. It's up there with TED Talks, Burning Man, Davos, things like that. It was expensive. I wasn't sure if it was going to be worth it. I also took the train out there, which was a long time. I wasn't sure if I would get the value out of it that I put into it. As it happened, it turned out to be great for me. As it came together, which happened during the event, I met the founder, Elliot, and then happened to meet his mother, Margot, and she's who I have the conversation with today. She was a big part of making that event great for me. As you'll hear in the conversation, she was like a force of nature there. She was connecting people. She was doing what leaders do despite having no formal role, as many leaders often work with no formal role. To give you some background also on Margot's formal leadership, she was an FTC commissioner. She was the chief of staff of the President's Council on Economic Advisors. She's in D.C., so she's had plenty of formal leadership. Today, we talk more about her book, Raising an Entrepreneur, 10 Rules for Nurturing Risk-Takers, Problem-Solvers, and Change-Makers, which she writes as a mother. As you'll hear, she found the roles of parents significant in people becoming entrepreneurs. She wrote this book for parents, but I also found that it applied equally to leadership and non-parent relationships, and I bet she expected. So let's listen to Margot. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. Hi, Josh. Hey, Mar- and this is Margot. How are you doing, Margot? I'm great. Thank you for coming here. And, you know, I, I want to talk to you about a couple of things. You've written a book on uh, how to raise an entrepreneur. And it occurs to me that it's easier for me to become an entrepreneur than it is for me to become a mom. And so there's things that I have no idea about. And I think a lot of people want to become more entrepreneurial and want to make others around them be more entrepreneurial. And there's another thing I want to talk about, too which is there's a big overlap between entrepreneurship and leadership. So I think talking about one, we'll talk about the other. I've also seen you in action at Summit and let the listeners know that she's blushing now. <laughs> well, let's talk, about the, let's talk about raising an entrepreneur first. Okay. Because I told you what I was going to say earlier and now you're blushing and you're making me not say it. So this is to get the listeners to be like, what's going to come next? Your background I, don't, I think a lot of stuff in government, a lot of people would say that's not particularly entrepreneurial, and yet your family is very entrepreneurial. And so what does a mom do or anyone to, to make someone more entrepreneurial? Is it you force them to get really high SAT scores and take lots of uh, AP tests, right? 
Um, so first of all, no one in my family was entrepreneurial until 10 years ago, uh-huh. 15 years ago. And second of all, I don't think you ever want to make someone an entrepreneur. I don't think you ever want to force someone to become more entrepreneurial. I think what you want to do is you want to raise them in such a way that they will become the best person they can be. And if that means more entrepreneurial and following a more traditional path, that's wonderful. And if it means becoming an entrepreneur, that's wonderful. I would never want to make someone an entrepreneur. And I think so many parents kind of fall into that trap. Oh, my kid should be an entrepreneur. I'm going to send them to entrepreneur camp. And then someday they'll think of a good idea and they'll become an entrepreneur. And that's exactly the opposite way that you actually do raise an entrepreneur. So we inadvertently raised two entrepreneurs, but we didn't know what we were doing. We weren't trying to. It just happened. So it wasn't telling them what to do. It wasn't guiding them. It was supporting them. It was supporting them. And I interviewed 60 entrepreneurs and their parents for my book on how they were raised. And there were only two of the 60 successful young entrepreneurs who were, quote, entrepreneurial, end quote, i.e., who were selling things through high school. So, yeah, I think I remember a long time ago, you told me that you, you spoke to a lot of parents and did you intend to find trends or did, were you just kind of talking to people and the trends popped out? So I had, you mentioned Summit for people who are listening who don't know, this is this organization my son stumbled into founding 10 years ago. And I'm happy to talk about that also later. And it's basically events uh, for young entrepreneurs. And so I just had met like every cool young entrepreneur in America. And I was just, we weren't really into being entrepreneurs. And I was just so curious about where these people came from, how they ended up being willing to take on so much risk and work so single-mindedly to achieve an objective and put everything on the line for an idea. And so I'd ask all of them how they were raised. And to my amazement, almost every single one of them said the same thing to me. They all said, I had someone, usually it was a parent, generally a mom, but it was always someone, someone who believed in me. Someone told me I could do anything I, I set my mind to and I worked hard enough at. And I believed that and that gave me the courage to take risk. And every single person said this. And I was so struck by it. And I just kept talking about it all the time. And finally, my kids started saying, mom, you need to write a book about this. And I'm like, I can't write a book. <laughs> mom, you need to write a book. I can't write a book. And mom, you need to write a book. Okay, I'll write a book. So I just thought I should interview people. And my only goal in choosing the people to interview was that I really wanted as diverse a group as possible. So I wanted half men, half women. I wanted every race, every religion, every socioeconomic background, born in this country, born overseas, first generation, second generation, single moms barely making it, upper middle class parents, one kid, three kids, five kids, seven kids, just as diverse a group. And while obviously in some ways they were raised differently, they, when they told me their stories, I began to realize over and over again in answer to your question, that there were these patterns emerge and they, in most of the core ways, they were all raised the same. And those are the 10 roles that I talk about in the book. So I want to ask about those. And I'm curious also, it's while you're speaking, I'm translating what you're saying from being a mom or from a mother being the the person who makes this happen or not who makes it happen, but uh, the, offering that support. But anyone, I mean, it, it's what you're talking about. Does It's not only moms or only parents can be that way. I feel like it's useful for anyone. Well, at, well, first of all, in terms of children, I mean, some of these people, most of these people did have a parent, 
who were was supportive, but some of them, in one case, it was a stepdad. In one case, it was a grandmother, but in other cases, it was a teacher or, or, or somebody. I mean, obviously it's, you know, it's perfect if it's a parent, but it doesn't have to be. But I mean, I feel this is true, not raising kids, but just in life. I mean, I've had people tell me when I've been talking about the book now, since it came out a couple of years ago. And so many people will tell me like, I never believed I could do anything. And I started this company and and one of the founders said, oh my God, you are incredible. You can do anything you set your mind to. And I was like, wow, I can. And then they they started you know, their own company. So I just think somewhere along the way, someone has to believe in you. That sounds kind of trite and corny, but I think it's true. Yeah, not just believe in you and then take the extra step of, of, of vocally saying it to you and, and behaving consistently with that. And anyone can do that. Right. And so when I talk about this to parents around the country, they all say, oh, come on, everyone believes in their child. And I say, no, no, everyone loves their child. Everyone wants the child to be happy and successful. But most parents believe if their child does the thing they love the best, whether that's playing chess or writing music or acting in the school play or running for office or running a little nonprofit or playing video games or whatever it is, they believe that if their child does that extensively, that, that they can't make a living and that it's not a serious pursuit. So as you know, my younger son is a musician and most of the parents who I've run across whose kids love music or acting or anything, any of the arts in high school, they all say very supportively, oh, of course you can take music lessons or art lessons or dance lessons in high school. But then in college, you have to major in something useful. So what does that communicate to the child? That communicates you don't really believe they can make it in the thing they love. And it also feels to me, I think of where that comes from. And it, I'm not a parent, but fear, anxiety. Yeah. And that must be very difficult on the parent's side. And for that matter, a, a manager or boss's side in a professional environment, because that, I, I keep translating into my life. And it's hard to let people to do what they think is best. But of course, why do you hire someone if not because you think they can do the job? So one of the, one of the people I interviewed for my book, who's really one of the most impressive people I know, Esther Wojcicki, and she was the high school journalism teacher of the year in California, high school, the teacher of the year in California. She started the biggest high school journalism program in the country. And Two of her kids, one became uh, CEO of YouTube and one became, started 23andMe. Yep. So this is Susan and Anna. Yeah. Uh-huh. Quite a family. Susan and Anne, yeah. And there's also a daughter who's a, um, who's a doctor. And so anyhow, she, she has this journalism program and, and the kids come in the first day and she says, okay, you can do anything you want this year because whatever you decide to do, I know you're going to do it really well and I'm going to support you and help you, but it can be anything you want. It can be a podcast. It can be a newspaper. It can be a TV show. It can be a radio show. It can be on politics. It can be on sports. It can be on current events. You decide. And she said, some of these kids, nobody's ever said that to them before. And they sit there for a week before they get the courage to, to choose. So you're, yeah, I feel like you're showing upstream against a common current in American parenting of uh, not all American parents, but certainly uh, I guess the extreme would be like the tiger mom uh, that was really popular, that book a few years ago of like, you got like every hour is spelled out and you got to do this and, and like all the things to fill out a college uh, application. And 
whether that works or not, th- what you're talking about is is different, and but it feels more wholesome and more loving, less fearful. Must be harder though. I, you know, I don't know if it is hard or not. It sounds like it, it might be hard if you've bought into that other perspective. Right. Well, I mean, I'm sure those kids will all grow up, you know, they'll get their straight A's and their tough SAT scores. And I mean, I think this is part of what that fight is at Harvard, you know, that kids are saying, well, I have the top grades and SAT scores, so I should just get in. And in fact, those kids are going to be great doctors and lawyers and accountants and architects and investment bankers, but they're not going to shake the world. I guarantee you Lin-Manuel Miranda was not a straight A student. I mean, maybe he was, but it's prob- he probably wasn't. And probably Elon Musk wasn't. And probably Steve, Steve Jobs wasn't. Mm-hmm. And these are the kids shaking the world. And those are really, those are the people that Harvard wants. They don't just want the people who've always done what they were told and who've always colored inside the lines. They want the people who think differently and creatively and you know, it's just, it's just, you're raising your child in a different way. And now you raised something else it, just now when you were talking that I think is really key and you were talking about fear. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the key traits separating entrepreneurs from other people is their approach to failure and that they're not afraid to fail. They're not afraid to take risk because if you're afraid to fail, you're afraid to take risk. And my favorite quote is Billie Jean King, who says, we don't call it failure. We call it feedback. Mm-hmm. But they've also done studies since then, and they've shown that when parents only praise their kids for success, then you get kids who, boy, they sure would love to try, you know, ancient Greek, but they're afraid they won't do well, so they just stick with Spanish or whatever. They want to maintain their their uh, identity. The, the classes they take, mm-hmm. you know, they're afraid to. Gee, if I try, if I take this class, I might get a C. I'd really like to, but I'm afraid I won't do well. So they only take the things they know they can do well in. And this is the same with companies. If you get furious with people, if they don't succeed, people just set small goals and make sure that they succeed at their small goals. I mean, I, as you said, I spent time in the government. And this is like a typical government thing. You don't, you under promise and over deliver or just deliver, you know, you don't have wild, crazy goals. And um, one of the people in my book, Blake Mikowski, whom I adore, who started Tom's Shoes, I mean, he always talks about how that he thinks that Tom's, that's one of the things he did the best. He calls it servant leadership. And he says, every time he screws up, he makes sure that everyone in the company knows that he screwed up and how he screwed up and what he learned from it and why it's not a a problem and how they're going to move on from it. I can't help but ask, did you screw up in any ways that, that you shared with your, with your family or with other, with the communities you've been in? Oh, I mean, yeah, I've screwed up a million ways, I guess. But I mean, it was interesting, both of my kids. So I never wanted my kids to become entrepreneurs. I wasn't trying to make them entrepreneurs, but I look back at it and both of them ended up having passions that we knew nothing about, which I'm happy to talk about later. So we couldn't advise them, but also they just screwed up incessantly. So (laughs) my older son, Elliot, decided at age 12 that he loved tennis. Mm -hmm. He'd been doing lots of sports. At that point, it was like, he hadn't done tennis that much. It was just, I'm just going to do tennis. This is my passion in life. And I don't know how much you know about tennis, but most of the kids who end up being top in the country at 12, they're doing regional and national tournaments already. Not not just starting. Not just starting. And he basically lost every match for four years. Uh it wasn't us. We don't play tennis. We certainly weren't encouraging him. We told him we thought it was ridiculous, but he loved it. He wanted to do it. And he lost match after match after match. And 
after each match, he'd say, you know, I know what I did wrong and I'll beat him next time. And he fought his way up to 35 in the country. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that teaches you after something. After four years, that's, yeah. Well, it, no, it, it was, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't 35 in the country after four years. I mean, he was 35 in the country after eight years, but uh-huh. he didn't even win a match for four years. That's, <laughs> so many people wish they could get results like that. And so few people put the work and resolve into it, even though they know that it's possible. I, I guess you never know, but he didn't do anything that anyone else couldn't do. I mean, maybe some people, it's not tennis, but people can put into what they love that level of commitment. And it's just few people are willing to suffer that many losses on the way there. Did he find the joy in the playing? Was that what, what kept him going? I know. He loved it. He just loved it. He was like, I mean, I'm sure, I think he thought he was going to be a professional tennis player. He, he loved it with a passion. It was just his passion. It's like all he did for, you know, eight years, 10 years. And um, the thing is that every one of the entrepreneurs in my book that I talked to that I just randomly picked, every one of them was like that about something. Every one of them was passionate about something. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't that their parents said, I'm going to make you an entrepreneur, but their kids had a passion. And because they had a passion, they ended up just like Elliot. They just worked like crazy on something they had chosen that they loved, that they screwed up and they fixed it and they solved it and they got better and they tried a different route and they did it again and again and again, and they got better and better and better. And they developed, not only they weren't afraid to fail, but they also developed the kind of confidence that you get when you've mastered something, that you've become really, really good at something that because you've done it the right way and the hard way and, and you get that kind of confidence. And so, you know, Elliot didn't end up doing anything in tennis, but he developed that confidence. Blake Mikowski, who I just mentioned, by the way, he also was a tennis player passionate about tennis. He doesn't do anything with tennis now. I mean, and a third of the uh, entrepreneurs in my book, it was sports. Their passion was sports. So that's why I'm saying, like, I think these parents, they shouldn't be freaked out that their kid is passionate about some something because, you know, it may not be what they do in life, but they develop a mindset. Yeah. I was going to say they develop, you said mindset. Also, I would say that like a, a set of social and emotional skills to handle the challenges that come from when you're self-directing to do something, it's, it's a different set of skills than to get an A on every test that's given to you when someone else is choosing, you know, what class to take in what order and what level of depth and so forth. It's a very different set of skills to master being, doing what you're told as to, as opposed to charting your own course. hundred percent. Couldn't have said it better myself. And it's not just charting your own course because he couldn't tell at the beginning what the course would be because he was just starting. Right. So it's, it's even something different. It's like figuring things out. You know, I have to ask you something that since you've done this research in, in my book, that's coming out in a couple of months, I talk about, I want to make accessible to people. I believe that people who find these great passions are not special in the sense of like, there, there's something superhuman about them and that what they do is accessible to anyone. Right. I think a lot of people hear that and think, Oh, if only I had a passion like that, Poor, woe is me. I don't have a passion like that. If I did, then I would do that too. I, I just hope that the muse will whisper in my ear and then it'll happen for me too. But I think that it's not. So some people think, wait for your passion to arrive and then act. I think other people think act and maybe your passion will arise. Yes, I, I believe the latter. And I had an interesting experience recently. I um, had an opportunity to go through our family's photo albums. Uh, from the beginning through to the end. We were really 
very good about. Okay. Now I know why were you looking at the old photo albums? What's happened recently with you? So um, my older son, Elliot just had a baby and I actually, thank you. And I made a book for him called Elliot from birth to dad. And I Mm. took photos of him from birth all the way through. And so I, for the first time ever, really, I was going through all the photo albums and up until 10 years ago, there were actually albums of the last, you know, 10 years it have been, it's digital, but before that it was just albums. So I went through these albums. So here's what's really interesting. And it kind of responds to your question. It, for my kids, there were two like pivotal transformational events that happened. To, I mean, they, they each had a pivotal transformational event. For Elliot, it was when he's starting to play tennis. We had two extra weeks before fifth grade. He went to a little camp. He kind of liked it. He took a, a, a lesson once a week through fifth grade. He decided to go to a tennis camp for a few weeks that summer. For Austin, it was when he was 13, the beginning of camp, he broke his leg. I was, it was a basketball camp. I was looking around desperately for something. And uh, the only thing I could find was a camp where you ended up, he could write music on a computer. And by the end of that summer, he was, he really liked that. And within a year, he was like writing four songs a day. And I mean, four songs a week. And he's been writing music ever since he's in a band. So here's what's so interesting. I went through the photo album and those two events for the kids, I didn't notice them. I didn't record them. I didn't take pictures. I have no pictures of Elliot with a tennis racket at all in fifth or sixth grade. Mm -hmm. I have pictures of him in his baseball uniform, holding a lacrosse stick playing soccer, zero tennis pictures. I have, for Austin, for that summer camp, I have a picture of him in the, in the play at the end of the camp. Don't mention the music. Don't mention it the next year. I mean, so I say to parents, and I'm like, you know, kind of an observant, you know, parent. Uh-huh. <laughs> and these, this thing happened to each of my kids where they started doing something that ended up becoming a passion. But no light bulb went on. I didn't pick it up. I didn't know it was a passion. I knew Elliot was playing tennis and Austin was writing music. I didn't know that was any different from any of the other myriad of things they were doing. It's only, you know, within a couple years later that I began to see, wow, this is really special. And now looking back, I can say, oh yeah, that's where it started. But I would say to parents, if you don't see your kids light bulb, it doesn't mean that they haven't started doing something that they love. It may just be that they're doing it and you're not noticing how much joy it gives them. And it may be that they're doing it and you think it's a waste of time. So you keep saying, stop spending so much time playing chess or writing music and go study your math. And it may be a million things, but it doesn't mean that something isn't there that, that's, that's, you know, grab their heart. It's like a, a discovery process for you as well. Because I hear you saying, like, don't necessarily try to look for every little thing. Am I oversimplifying to say it's to support them in choosing what they think is best for themselves and letting them play? Yes. And being proud of them for their success in that thing and letting them know that you value their success in that thing as much as you value their success in the academic things. And some of those things are things that you aren't aware of. Or don't know anything about, or it's not your world. I mean, we don't write music. We don't, we're not musicians. We don't play tennis. We're not very athletic. Like we didn't, you know, they were enjoying it. Okay, cool. I didn't know in either case it was going to transform their lives. I wonder, and I'm trying to extrapolate from your experience as a parent, can managers and leaders use that 
okay, some people hire people because they they want a job done and they say, this is the way I want it done. Do X, Y, Z, or do, you know, step one, step two, step three. Don't think about it. Just do it. They're probably not listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then there are going to be ones who are like, this is a hard problem. I don't know how to solve it. I probably, possibly I could, but I'm hiring you because you're better at it. And now there are going to be certain deliverables that probably parents don't have for kids of like, you know, this thing has to be done at this time. But I coach a lot of people who want to be more entrepreneurial. And one of their biggest problems is that their bosses don't listen. Their bosses don't support. They manage, which is a part of leadership. You're talking about something different. And I, I wonder if that also translates into professional relationships. And I, I don't think it would have to be just a manager or boss or leader to a follower or a, a manager, but it could be peers. It could be just leadership doesn't have to require being somewhere relative positions in a hierarchy. Right. But if you're a creative person who wants to think outside the box and, and try different kinds of things, then you have a boss who just wants you to do it the way he tells you. It's probably not a good fit. I mean, I, I still remember my first job out of college. I worked at the Office of Economic Opportunity in Chicago and, and I was just really diligent and hardworking. And, and uh, anyhow, after a, a year or something, I was time for review and whatever it was, I didn't get the highest review. I got like the next, you know, a medium review. And I went and I asked my boss, I said, I, I just don't get it. Like I've done every single thing you've asked me to, and you know, more so. And he said, yes, but you challenged me. So, okay. The listeners can't see that. I just like went, I was just taken aback. I'm like, yeah. And so that's a bonus, right? <laughs> well, obviously that wasn't a good fit. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking also for people who are listening, who want to become better managers, better leaders, there's probably more support is a difficult thing to do support. Even when you don't know where it's going to go. I feel like that's one of the things that, that, that you're saying works and has worked with all these successful entrepreneurs and from coming from their parents. And I think, cause I'm not a parent and I'm, I'm thinking, can I, how can I use this myself? And I think it's to listen more and to support more and to put more faith in the other person that what they're, that they're not, they would know if they were wasting their time. And that's scary. On the other hand, they might not get this job done how I wanted them to do it, but they might come up with ways of doing things or things to do that I never would have thought of. And that's, that's growth and results that the kind that people dream of. Right. And that's why they say, you know, when they've studied more diverse companies, they do better than when companies, everybody in the company looks alike. Because when everybody in the company looks alike, they're all white men or whatever, no offense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> For those who don't know, I'm a white man. <laughs> um, Unoffended. Yeah. Although I've not been invited to lots of places where it's like majority not white men. So it's not like I'm being brought in to make other places more diverse. So, yeah, but, but anyhow, they have discovered that when you get a more diverse um, population in a company, you you end up with different ways to, of viewing the same thing and come up with new ideas Anyway, I'd love to read you just one little paragraph that I wrote, which I think applies not only to parents raising kids, but also anybody, any leader in a company. I say, um, even if your child doesn't want to be an entrepreneur, encouraging them to become more entrepreneurial by promoting certain attitudes can only be a good thing. All children thrive, and I would say all people thrive, mm -hmm. if they learn to believe in themselves 
to pursue their true passions, to find new ways to solve old problems, to see opportunity where others see the status quo, to be willing to take on a challenge without proper credentials, to work with single-minded determination to achieve a goal, to take on risk if the project is worth trying, to learn that building something wonderful is its own reward, regardless of how much money you make, to view failure as feedback and setbacks as learning experiences, and to dream big dreams. Now, can you say the the couple words before the list of of the two to do that? I said, even if your child doesn't want to be an entrepreneur, encouraging them to become more entrepreneurial can only be a good thing. All children thrive if they learn to behave in these ways. All children thrive. Yeah, it's, what's the word? Counter, it's advice that runs counter to what you often hear. But as a child, when I think of being a child, like, that's what I want. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I now want to change the topic, not change the topic, but, but go with, you were talking about diverse communities and we talked about Summit earlier and that's how we met. All right, I'm going to make you blush. That's, that's the way it's going to be. Is that one of my measures for leadership, a lot of people say, how can you tell if someone's a good leader or not? And there's no hard and fast rules, but one of my measures is the followers I have. And so I met you and I've also seen something so I've seen you from a slightly different perspective of you at Summit, which is I see you walking through a crowd, talking to this person, talking to that person, talking to this person, talking to that person. And there's like this wake of people reacting to your passing through. And they're all smiling and they're all like talking to each other. And that to me is followership. And I felt like I saw something there that, so Summit for people who don't know is a conference. I describe it, you can describe it maybe differently than I would, but to me, it's like sort of between Ted and Burning Man, and very entrepreneurial. And it's a place where people can very easily meet each other. And people who normally put their guard up, I feel like they put their guard down so that they're open to being approached and open to approaching. Even in a context where everyone is like that, I saw a wake behind you that I didn't see behind other people. Yeah. So let the, the listeners, she's blushing. She's like shirking. She's like, please, please, please. But tough luck. That's what you get when you talk to me. <laughs> I saw, that's what I saw. I wonder if you could say something about the summit forming or what you do there, what, like what it is to you, or what do you do when you're there that results in what I saw? Pick up on any of these threads. Wow. Well, I love summit. I don't do anything. I just show up and I'm happy to be there. Um, you certainly don't sit in the corner. No, but um, as you said, I mean, the nice thing about summit is everyone's sort of been pre-cleared to be a friend. And at one of the earlier summits, a woman came up to me in a high powered New York executive and, she said, I, she goes to all these events in New York and she's, you can't see this, you know, her arms were like clutched to herself. And she's, she said, I'm like, what do you want from me? And she said, I come to summit and her arms are outstretched. And it's like, hi, how can I help you? Mm-hmm. It's just a different, it's just a different um, attitude. And that's, they say like, just don't fanboy the the big guys. I mean, just everybody's, everybody's there because they're interesting. Everybody's there because they're doing something that they love. And it doesn't matter if they have three employees or 30,000 employees. They're, 
it doesn't matter if they're artists or entrepreneurs or if they're doing nonprofit work or they're activists, whatever they're doing, they're doing something they're excited about and they're trying to make the world a better place. And it's just a wonderful group of people. And I just feel, I feel so lucky that both our kids, you know, my other son is in a band and he, you know, we get to be groupies and show up at his concerts. So I feel so lucky. Like if our kids had become like lawyers or doctors, like you can't just go sit in their office. (laughs) (laughs) We get to go to concerts. We get to go to summit events. I just like, how lucky are we? I'm curious about the, the story. What did it look like from the outside forming? Cause I, I'm recent to it. And the, the woman who invited me had been there. She's been doing it for eight or nine years. So she gave me some picture, but yours is, I'm curious your picture. So it's really interesting. So as I say, like we, we weren't really thinking about entrepreneurship or starting companies or anything. And Mark actually had just started his first company, which was a newsletter and ended up being newsletter and events in commercial real estate. And Elliot went off to Wisconsin to play tennis and um, his, the RA in his dorm said, um, Hey, let's, uh, let's start a t-shirt company. And Elliot said, cool. Who are we going to work for? And uh, the guy was like, no, no, we're just going to do it. And Elliot's like, but who are we going to work for? He just couldn't. Uh, was it? His blinders were on. Blinders. Like it just, I mean, this is, you know, 2004, like people just weren't really thinking that way. Mark was about to start his company at that point. Hadn't really, it's just, I don't know. It just wasn't our mindset. And after two and a half years, he was, he, he worked with Mark over the summer between his sophomore and junior year. And then after the first semester of his junior, he just, he told me he was taking a semester off. <laughs> and, um, and he came to be Mark's first employee. And um, after um, a year, he said he really wanted to meet entre- young entrepreneurs and see how they did it. He was just so curious and he didn't think he was cool enough that they would meet him. And you know, normally, so he decided he should um, ask them all to go skiing in Utah for a weekend. So he looked and inked and wired and found who he thought were the coolest 20 young entrepreneurs under the age of 25. And he cold called them and 18 said yes. And they went off to Utah for a weekend and it was just going to be a one-off. He never thought it was going to be an organization or a company or anything. And at the end of the weekend, and this is 2008, nobody in that group had ever met anybody like themselves before. And they all said, they were like best friends for life. And they all said, oh my gosh, you have to do this again. And I want to bring five friends. And my, my, the other part of the story that I love is, so he had been selling ads. So he was really good at cold calling. He was selling ads for Mark's newsletters. And so he had called, he had called um, some sponsors to get some money to pay for this and to get some stuff and North Face sent everybody jackets and uh, duffel bags. Uh-huh. So the, at the last day, they were all skiing and a reporter came up and said, hey, what do you call this organization? And Elliot hadn't thought of it as an organization. So he looked down at the jacket from North Face and it said Summit Series. And he goes, uh, <laughs> Summit Series. So that's how the name came. And so that was the first one. So, I mean, I helped him. He said he wanted to, you know, invite these uh, 18 people to go skiing for a weekend. And I helped him find a nine-bedroom house. And I uh, helped him find somebody to, you know, serve some meals and, uh, you know, helped him do a little of the organization. But, you know, I did, we, obviously we didn't go to it. So anyhow, that was the first one. It's funny now that you see it, I can see these things in it that now that you say it, I can see the elements that are like when I was there, I was thinking, what 
creates this culture here. Part of it is who's invited and the process. You, you have to be nominated and things like that. But some of it I didn't quite get. Like why food was provided and, you know, different things were provided, but lots of things weren't provided. And now I see some of the, some of the, the kernels of, of those things. Very interesting. It gives a lot of depth. Everything was provided. The connections aren't provided. Like I had a roommate who I didn't know who this guy was. And so I'm, I have to meet this guy, but no, there's no thing for me to meet that person. And it's not, and I didn't know the schedule before until I got there. I mean, I knew something of the schedule, but not really. There's, I mean, at a lot of conferences, there are things that are provided. Um, it's like every day, you know exactly what to do, but this, I mean, maybe you have a choice. There's like three breakout sessions and you have to pick one of them. This is not like that. This is, I mean, I'm walking all over, uh, what do you call it? Downtown LA. I'm not all in one conference center or one hotel. Right. It's, it's a learning safari, as they and, call it. Yeah, and I would go in the morning to, like I was a morning person. I would go to the workout events in the morning. My roommate was a night person and he would come in like only a couple hours before I got up. So we actually didn't meet until the last day. <laughs> we would just kind of be very quiet and not bother the other one. And I appreciate that he was quiet and I hope I was for him. And then when we, we had a great time because he was an actor and I took a lot of acting lessons and how acting has informed my leadership a lot. And so I would, you know, there's no one telling you you should favor this type of event versus that type of event, or even that there's a type of trend of types of events that you could have. A lot of it is what you get out of it. The first couple of days I was really struggling. And then just, it wasn't long before I met you that things started fitting together. Like if I want to make this work, I have to make it work. Most conferences. And if you don't put the work in, it's not work. If you don't put the attention in, you can have a really miserable time. Whereas most trade shows and things like that, they're designed that if you don't, work on it. You can't help, but go to all the right things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They more spoon feed you. Yeah. But anyhow, you, you asked um, about the culture. How did the culture get started? So you have to understand like Elliot was a 22 year old kid and he wasn't, you know, he wasn't thinking he was going to start this path breaking company. He just, the first time he just thought it'd be like cool to meet these people and see how they started a company. And then they all said they wanted to do it again and they wanted to bring five friends. And so he started organizing another one for that fall in Playa del Carmen, Mexico. And that's where some of the other summit founders came on to help him. And he was still working, you know, with, on the newsletter with my husband. And I always say that it was like that scene in Dumb and Dumber at the end where they, these girls come by and say, we're looking for guys to rub oil in our body. And they say, well, if we find anyone, we'll let you know. (laughs) (laughs) Cause he's, you know, they're, they're, they're setting up this, um, this event in Mexico for 60 people. And he's saying, gee, I wish I could think of a company. I'd love to start my own company. And it was like, oh, right about the time of the actual event, he was like, oh, gee, I wonder if this could like be something like I could actually do, you know, like after, after the next week, you know? Uh-huh. And um, I think he would tell you it's the only event they've ever done that he wasn't, that he didn't really like because there was no, what, you know, what, what we, we, we now call curation. I mean, everyone just invited five friends Mm-hmm. And there were just a lot of like rich, obnoxious party animals who were there. Mm-hmm. And one of the people who was there was Tony Shea, who started Zappos. Mm-hmm. And um, Tony said to him, you know, I think you might really have something here, but let me ask you a question. Are there people here, if they weren't famous, you wouldn't want to hang out with them? And Elliot said, yes. And Tony said, listen to me, this is really important. You can never invite them back because it will ruin everything you want to do. And if you don't invite them back, you can build something amazing. 
And it was like an epiphany. Mm-hmm. And Elliot said, you know, I'm not going to say you have to be doing $25 million worth of business. I'm going to say you have to have started something you're passionate about and you have to be a nice person. And if you change the paradigm for who you invite, which they did after that event, mm-hmm. then suddenly you get interesting, nice people who are starting interesting, nice things. And you can get women and you can get minorities because a lot of them haven't reached that threshold. I mean, that's why YPO is just all white men. Mm-hmm. And so they changed it after that and it became what it is today. I want to go back to something I asked you before about, I, I said, some people think you have to have a passion and you act. Some people think you act and that creates a passion. What I, my model is that people have interests, but an interest is not yet a passion. Some of those interests may evolve into a passion if you work at it and some of them may not. And I think that I, I have this little cycle in my head of uh, IAP interest or uh, initiative, action, passion. So at the beginning, you'll have some direction of where you want to go, and then you, you take initiative to act on it. The action will turn the interest into a passion, which will create more initiative, which will create more action. And so you have to act a little bit that drives more passion, that drives more action, that drives more passion, that drives more action. Sometimes it doesn't pay off, and you have to, gotta give, you have to cut bait. And so I think it's if you wait for your action to be so great, then you'll often burn yourself out. If you wait for your passion to be so great, then you'll often wait forever. And I think you have to start a little bit, then take a few steps see if that increases your interest, take more steps and, and go on a cycle like that. No, I, I agree completely. I mean, you know, Elliot, Elliot was like a big baseball star before he, was, before he fell in love with tennis. And the fact that he put all that time into baseball, I mean, he was amazing at second base. He was amazing. And the fact that he put all that time in didn't mean that it was a waste or that it was pointless or he, he took what he could out of it and he learned stuff and figured out what he liked and what he didn't. And then the next sport came along and, you know, he fell in love with that. But also, and we were talking before about passion. And I said that everyone in the, who I interviewed had a passion for something. So about a third of the people, their passion became what they do today. Like the people who were in music or film, their passion really just went straight forward. There were other people like Elliot or Blake Mikowski, whose passion when they were young, has nothing to do with what they do today. But they just, like we were talking about, kind of developed the mindset and the the confidence so that when the right thing came along, they're ready to jump into it. But there was a third group, and this is more what you're talking about, where they're, they were passionate about one thing and it morphed into something else, which 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 morphed into what they're doing today. Alexis Jones, first it was acting and then it was storytelling and then it was public speaking and then it was public speaking about a cause that she fell in love with. Uh, uh, Joel Holland, first he was selling things and then he was trying to, he wanted to figure out like what good careers would be. And he went to his guidance counselor in high school and it turned out there was nothing interesting about all the different careers. So he decided he was going to try to, he'd been filming these little projects when he's younger, he decided he would try to film people talking about interesting careers. And he got somebody to give him a grant and he went around for a year and interviewed CEOs about what their career was for high school kids. And then one of the people he'd interviewed was Governor Schwarzenegger in California. And he realized what he said was interesting, but it wasn't interesting to watch it because there was no background information, you know, no background pictures. So he decided he needed some background pictures and there was nothing available online. So he started a company where, you know, to get like the backdrops, the cities and the 
the mountains and all this kind of stuff. And he built a huge company in that. And so it's like one thing kind of led to another, which led to another, which led to another, which led to another. It's not like he woke up at when he was eight years old and said, I'm going to start a company called Footage Firm that's going to have footage for (laughs) people to download. But, you know, just one thing, he just let it, he let it, he kind of rolled into it. Yeah. I mean, passions lead you to have people, acting on passions leads you to have people in your life who are passionate. Then you follow suit with them and you work with them. Here's here's something I've learned. And boy, listening just now, I wish I'd spoken to you a couple months ago because I could have put some stats into, into my book. You said they act on their passion, they learn something. It might not work out. They learn how to act on their passions. They learn how to solve problems, identify problems and solve them. And it can just morph. It can just develop. You know, it can just, it doesn't have to be a sort of a linear thing. And, and, and parents or bosses like shouldn't be upset if they see somebody going off on something that's in, in a direction that they don't think is going to lead somewhere because oh, yeah. you don't know where it's going to lead. And people who, who don't act on their passions are scared that they might act on the wrong one or that they don't have one to act on. People who have succeeded at this, they look back at ones that they, that, you know, air quotes didn't pan out and they're glad that they did that. It doesn't feel like they wasted. If it was something they didn't end up doing, they're not, they don't look back and feel bad that they wasted their time. On the contrary, they're glad that they did it and they wish they'd done it earlier because that first thing led to the second thing or to the third thing, or, you know, sometimes that first thing panned out. People who don't act are scared of acting. They're scared of what's happening is that it's not going to work out how they want. But the people who did act, they're glad for exactly that reason. Even if it didn't pan out, it led to what did work out. Right. It's not, as I said, the Billie Jean King quote, it's not failure, it's feedback. And how do you learn unless, I mean, all these kids were like, you know, there's so many kids and they have no idea what they're interested in because they haven't really started to do anything. They haven't tried anything. They haven't explored anything. They're just... They're just so busy doing what they're told and, and, and making everybody happy and coloring within the lines and trying to get A's on, on all the requirements. It's really heartbreaking. That's so, it's so funny to, I, I want to take just you saying that dripping with, it's not contempt, but like you're saying what a lot of people dream for their kids. They think that they will deliver what they, what they dream for their kids is, is happiness and success, I guess. But what they're actually doing is what you are like, almost contemptuously saying, it's like, you almost feel compassion for people like that, that they're trying to get something and what they're doing is actually getting the opposite or getting, not, maybe not the opposite, but not achieving it. No, I, I think it, 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 it actually generally often, or maybe not generally, but often is the opposite. I mean, these parents are putting, they're putting so much effort into trying to help their kids achieve happiness and their kids are miserable. Because first of all, they have no free time to figure out what they really enjoy doing. And second of all, they're absolutely terrified that they're going to screw up and get a B in something and their life will be ruined. I mean, I, I mentioned Esther Wojcicki, the journalism teacher. She's at Palo Alto High School. So many kids were jumping in front of the train on their way home from school that they have a crossing guard now at Pali High School to keep kids from killing themselves on the way home. I mean, it's really bad out there. And the, the percentage of, of kids in college who say they've considered suicide, the, the percentage of kids in middle school who say they've considered suicide. I mean, it's, it's horrifying. There's no contempt in my voice. There's nothing but, but sorrow. There, I did put some statistics in my book, research that, was, that finds higher level of anxiety and drug use and things like that among communities with higher, like well 
to do suburban communities where the schools are valued, that the kids are more show more anxiety, more drug use, more fear of the future. And but that's not to say that education doesn't isn't useful, but it's a certain kind that can be counterproductive. No, I mean, I'll, I'll, we should do another podcast and talk about how screwed up our education system is. Well, that's yeah, yeah. As you said, a whole other show. I want to stop here and leave the listeners hanging of now I want to read your book because your book is How to Raise a, an Entrepreneur. Well, yeah, Raising an Entrepreneur, 10 Roles for Nurturing Risk Takers, Problem Solvers, and Change Makers. And we've heard the results. And now I want to switch top. I, I, don't mean to st- I didn't mean I want to stop. I want to switch topics to the environment because that's what you talked about brought people who have passions. And that's the big passion that brought me there because I was doing a panel on leadership in the environment. And that's how I got someone attended that and invited me to the summit. And that's how we met. And okay, the, the environment seems like something you it, it's something that you care about. Is it something that matters to you? I mean, I hope it matters to every thinking human being. Well, I guess it's different to everyone, I think. I mean, different people. What does it mean to you when you think about the environment? What, is, what does the environment mean to you? I mean, I, honestly, I think it's terrifying that our kids are going to be screwed. The plastic in the ocean and warming and it's terrifying. I, I'm seeing a very a visceral, strong feeling. I mean, terrifying is not a soft word. I mean, when you see pictures of these whales with, you know, pounds of plastic debris in their stomachs, you know, and the coral reefs that are bleaching out and the, you know, animals that are dying off and that's not good. Yeah. As you say it, um, it's making me think of these things and it's making me, it is terrifying. And we are kind of sleepwalking into it is what it feels like to me. It's hard. uh, Sorry. The way you said it, it's hard not to comment on it. Now I'm very, I've, I've, we were kind of joking before and now it's, it's gotten very sober. But one of the things that I, part of the show is, and one of the, my goals as a podcast is to have people, give people a chance to act on something that they've, they feel strongly about and share their experience. And I wonder if you would be interested in, based on what you said, the plastic in the ocean, the ocean, the, the coral, the, the whales, uh, what you think about when you think about the environment, what you feel when you think about the environment. I invite you at your option to act on, to do something, you not to fix all the world's problems all by yourself overnight, but just something to act on that, that, that terrifying feeling or something that, you know, about the environment that you think about or that you feel that would make a difference, however small or big, but not telling someone else what to do and not just education or awareness as valuable as those things may be something that makes a measurable difference. We actually talked about this a little yesterday. I've been racking my brain since then, and I feel like a, you know, complete imbecile. And I had mentioned to you yesterday when when we spoke that I've been trying not to use plastic straws and to carry metal straws with me when I go to restaurants. And I feel like a buffoon because half the time in restaurants I forget to ask until they bring the drink, and then I'm like, no, I don't want a plastic straw. <laughs> and um, I mean, of course, I can just you know vow to be more diligent and uh, make sure always to talk about, you know, ask in advance. And I always, when they do have plastic straws, I always go up to the general manager afterwards and say, you know, this is supposed to be like a cool millennial restaurant. How can you serve plastic straws? It just doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not appropriate. It's not good for your, you know, your, the people you want to reach and, it, and it's bad for the planet. And um, I mean, I can do that in a more consistent way 
but that still feels kind of weak and pathetic. And actually you, based on the conversation we just had, it might be the most meaningful person I've said this to is that what I found is not the magnitude of the first or even early things that the person does, but the developing of the skills and changing that mindset. Because once that mindset shifts, then things that never popped up, if you don't do the little things, it's really hard to do the big things. But if you do the little things, if you do do the little things, oftentimes the big things become not big anymore. They become the natural next step or maybe medium-sized things and then the big things. I mean, you know, I, I didn't fly to LA to the summit. I took the train. I didn't intend to get to a place in my life where I would not take planes. But by the time I got there, it was a natural next step that had I not taken the earlier steps, however small they seemed at the time, I wouldn't have gotten there. And so I, I think it sounds great. And uh, I propose making a smart goal out of it, which is to say specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-based. So whereas you said um, you might put a little more effort into it, maybe we could say a specific amount of time, a specific amount of effort, or a specific um, result. So I can. So what would the result be? I mean, just no more plastic straws? For some period of time. Yeah, like if you said, you know, for some period of time, I'll do my best to make it zero or make my, do my best to make it below a certain threshold or something like that. I'll try to do it forever. Well, <laughs> I'm not going to go back to plastic in June. <laughs> I'm a fan of forever, but well, let's say this. How about we plan a time when you come back on and share the experience and for the experience to be enough, enough time from now that it's either stuck or not, or, or that you have something meaningful to say about the experience. Do you have a suggestion for how I can remind myself every time I go out before at the very beginning when I sit down? Uh, I mean, the top suggestion is to do exactly what you're doing with me, with others. So ask other people who have habits, like who have created habits, how they've been able to do it. I mean, for me, oh, you know, you caught me today. I was going to a lunch and they only had plastic forks. And I normally have a plastic uh, metal fork in my bag and I did not have one today. But normally I keep a metal utensils in my bag. I just keep them in my bag. When I get home, I rinse them off and so that they're generally clean. And I just make a habit of having them in there. You know, when I, at the store where I get peanut butter, they have a machine that you put a little container under and it, peanuts go in and peanut butter comes out. They have free containers that you can get there. I don't take them. I reuse ones that I've been using for a long time. If I forget to bring that container with me, I simply just don't get peanut butter that day. And so I've learned through experience of lacking peanut butter. I don't let myself be like, oh, next time I'll remember. I, okay, I forgot it this time. Or if I go to the store and I don't bring a bag with me, I only bring home what I can carry in my hands. So that being hungry is, a, is an excellent teacher for me because I don't like being hungry. And once I was, when I was meeting with that big beverage company in Atlanta, <laughs> I was having dinner with, a, with someone on the sustainability team there and they brought out water and there were straws in it. And I wasn't going to drink the water anyway. I wasn't thirsty. So I didn't really think anything of it. And he said, can you bring those back? And they said, well, if we bring them out, we're just going to throw them out. And he said, well, then whatever. And I said, well, do whatever you want with the others, but take mine back. And they said, well, we're going to throw it out. And I said, what you do is your responsibility. I'm not being responsible for that. I didn't ask for this. And I wouldn't have done that had not been in a community where someone else took the initiative. But I feel, I felt that it was, even if they did throw that particular straw out, it would tip them, it would get them closer to not serving them the next time and, and going to a place where they just don't serve straws. And then maybe next time it'll be, they don't serve another single use plastic stuff. Or, and, and I think of all the things I could have done, that was the direction that was most useful given the situation at the moment. 
And so did any of those help to your question of what to do? I, I think maybe adopting the mindset of that you want to reach a strategy that works for you and each time learn from each time to make it a little bit more conclusive the next time. And that now that I think of it, what I would say to <laughs> what I'd say to a student in my leadership and entrepreneurship classes when they ask a question like that is I say, good question. Work on it and tell the class what you've learned the next time we meet. <laughs> okay, will do. And that's actually what I think one of the reasons why I like people not knowing what they want to do is that listeners who are like, well, I don't know what to do. Here's someone else who doesn't know what to do. And then they hear other people struggle through it. And sometimes it's easy, but usually it's not. And no matter how small this is, yeah, a couple straws is not that big of a difference compared to, you know, what ExxonMobil is pumping out in every second. But the skills that you learn, you're not going to unlearn. And the next thing, one day you're going to be doing something that other people are going to say, that's really big. And you're going to think it's not. And you're going to think, oh, it's because I did that straw thing that made it easier. That's my prediction. I want to, leadership, you got to start where people are. Fantastic. So, so how long do you think it'll take before you can say something meaningful and substantive about it? I don't know. What's your experience? Oh, people, I mean, I've had people, the second conversations have gone between a week later and a year later. I have a feeling it'll be more than a week, but less than a year. Probably. That sounds uh-huh. What's the difference. So that would be six months. I think it'll be sooner than that, but I'm not, it's up to you. How often do you find yourself at a restaurant where a straw is served or not? It doesn't have to be a restaurant. It can be like a stop. Um, mm, several times a week. So if it was several times a week, so if, if it took a dozen times, that would be like three or four weeks. <laughs> What's You're, so funny? You want me to uh, like commit to a date? Oh yeah. Cause I want to schedule a second conversation. <sighs> okay. Well, we can schedule it after we, after we. Okay. Give me, how about four months? Four months. Okay. Okay. Done. Cool. And then we'll schedule the exact time after we, not online. Okay, cool. You think I can do it in three months? So now the listeners can't see your expression. I hear you laughing and you look like you're, this is a mix of silly, but kind of interesting. Do I read you right? How do you feel about it? It's interesting. And are you doing it because of me or are you doing it because of? Because it needs to be done. So it's, it's a, a sense of responsibility. It's a good thing. Okay. Okay. Done. Okay, cool. And yeah, I think that what will happen is that people will listen to this among other people that are renowned, if I can call you renowned, and that they will say, I think that people will say, if she's such a bozo and she's going to do something, then I can do something. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's the opposite. Of, it's, it's very different than if I act, but no one else does. And what I do doesn't make a difference. Because you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Oh, now I should say to you, there's someone I should put you in touch with, Dune Ives of Lonely Whale, who has been a guest on this show. And she played a big role in the straw campaign getting started. And she works with Adrian Grenier from the... Um... I know who he is. He's, okay. he's been to Summit. Okay. So <laughs> I should probably put you guys in touch. I want to wrap up with... Uh, there's a couple of questions that I ask to close. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask to this worth bringing up? No, I, I'm, I'm content. Okay. And is there anything that you want to, oh, sorry, what? I said, I hope you are too. Yes. I'm and more content now than I was when we began talking an hour ago. <laughs> is there anything to say to the listeners that you might want to say directly to the listeners? Wow. Um, just don't worry. <laughs> um, 
let go, trust the process. It'll be fine. Your kids will be fine. It's not, it's not a smooth ride. You might not notice what they're doing that is going to lead to something great. You might not think it's going to lead to something great, but if you tell them it's a wonderful thing they're doing and you let them prosper and thrive, you'll be amazed at, at how their life could turn out. And I think for people who don't have kids, the same is true in a company. Don't, don't be too rigid in your expectations of what things ought to look like. But encourage people to, to try new things and encourage them to think boldly. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. Don't be upset. Encourage them to try something else. If you don't mind me commenting on that, you've just made something about the way you said that. It's given me a really strong feeling that a lot of my, looking back at my childhood, I've often thought of the things that, where they told me to do this and I didn't want to. But what you said, I got a lot of that growing up and I haven't thought about it enough. Sorry to wax philosophical or whatever you call that. By the way, that was the one thing I didn't, you said, what didn't I ask? I didn't get to ask about your upbringing, but we can do that next time. I'll make a note of it. Okay, cool. Thanks, Josh. Margot Biznow, thank you very much. It's my pleasure. I wish you could see Margot at work. She would say that she wasn't working, but I think effective leadership, like any active, social, emotional, expressive, performance-based performance art, when mastered, feels and looks effortless, like the person is just being himself or herself. One of Summit's main goals is to create an environment where people can connect with each other. Margot connected people more than most. In that sense, she was achieving more than most people were, despite not trying. She may have felt and looked like she was just enjoying herself, and she probably was, but I've spent years developing the skills, experiences, and beliefs to be able to do that myself, and I bet that she did too. In any case, I wanted on this podcast to share a bit of someone who appears like a natural leader. feel inspired to then act go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others value means better and worse and living by your values means living better by your values you may struggle at first but it's the hero's journey from living by others values to living by yours people say that little things add up i won't argue against it but what i find counts is acting Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.